Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. I'm Dan Putt, and we're doing something a little different today. We are re-releasing one of our most popular conversations to date, one that ran a little over a year ago between Jerry, Fred Wilson, and Brad Feld. Now, these old friends talked about a variety of topics, but one they particularly discussed in this conversation was building and maintaining a strong relationship with your board. Now, a critical mistake that entrepreneurs make is not thinking about their board of directors early enough. And this is why we're rerunning this episode. And this is why we created Reboot Your Board, a four-day self-guided practical skills course all about managing your board via the wisdom of Jerry, Fred, and Brad. Now, this course is for any company of any size, including those who haven't yet taken investment. And over the course of four days, worth of rich content, we take you through the practical challenges of growing and developing a high-functioning board, just as these guys discuss in this conversation. The board relationship doesn't have to be a challenge. In fact, it can be one of the most rewarding aspects of a leadership journey. And when done well, the board-CEO partnership can help each party grow and become the best possible person they can be. And we hope you enjoy this conversation. And be sure to get started on our Reboot Your Board course at RebootYourBoard.com. We all have the opportunity. If we're going to go out on a limb and be entrepreneurs, we have an opportunity to create the kind of company that we want to work for. And what I'm hearing from the two of you is that you both created the partnerships that you wanted to work for. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. This is Dan Putt, a partner here at Reboot. This is a conversation that really felt like a privilege to sit in on. As I listened to this, I was really moved by the commitment Jerry and our two guests have to the importance of getting your house in order. Now, this doesn't just mean literally at home, nor does it mean just at the office, but it's across the board. It means doing your work, doing work at home and with your family, and doing work on the organization as well. I think it's easy to see the house in order as a consequence of success, but what if the opposite is true? In the fall of 2013, things were falling apart for my little startup, one that I've talked about a few times before. We were running out of cash and had a sputtering product and really no plan to fix it. And even worse, the team was coming apart. Yes, everyone was stressed, but it was so much worse than that. In some cases, people were just downright hostile with each other. Now, the temptation was to push this all to the side, to focus on digging in, getting back to work. The thing that we hoped, the fear could be pushed away if we just worked harder. Shockingly, that approach didn't help. So in the midst of the company coming apart and little money left in the bank, we brought everyone together for two days of getting the house in order. Now, it was hard and scary, and emotional, and terrifying. And even more terrifying was this feeling that we were just wasting our time. We should have been working. And I'll never forget emailing with Jerry during that time and giving him updates on what was going on, and ultimately letting him know that the team had found some ways to come together and to heal a bit. His response, congrats guys, this, this is the real work. This is the most important work. 
Now, that meeting did not save the company, nor frankly did it save the relationships of some on the team. But it really did teach me a valuable lesson about what real work is. How can you expect to serve others, whether it be customers, portfolio companies, your organization, if your own house is not in order? We're so fortunate to welcome two elders, Jerry's words, not mine, of the startup and investor world to the Reboot Podcast today, Brad Feld and Fred Wilson. Now, these three have a friendship and history that goes back nearly 20 years, and the wealth of experience between them is truly incredible. So in what we hope is a series of conversations, Fred, Brad, and Jerry share some stories from their past, moments where they were pushed to their limits physically and emotionally. They share some critical steps to being an effective and supportive board member and investor, and how the lessons from the past painful experiences show up in the values of their firms. We would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So check out the show notes at reboot.io slash podcasts. Or leave us a comment and review on SoundCloud or iTunes. You can also reach us on Twitter at RebootHQ. This was a great conversation. Enjoy it. Hey, Brad and Fred. It's great to see you guys. Thank you so much for coming on. It's great to be here. Howdy. So, you know, I think this this is maybe the first time in probably about five or six years that the three of us are actually speaking together at the same time. That can't can't be true. Well, when was the last time the three of us talked? I mean, it's been, it may be a 20-year-old friendship, but it's been a hell of a long time since I think we were in the same time zone, let alone in the same room and having a conversation. Well, if it's true, I'm shocked. Well, and so what it means, Fred, is that you got to spend more time in Boulder, because that's what two-thirds of the three of us are. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> I'll, I'll take that as a personal challenge. As, as that, that's my development goal. How about, how, about, how about as an invitation? That's right. That's right. That's right. So thanks so much for coming on. You know, you both have done this before, and I really appreciate it. And, and you know, the folks who listen to the podcast, um, most of them tune in to really experience the conversation with Um, entrepreneurs who are going through their own struggles Um, occasionally and I've done conversations with each of you we also sort of take a break from that and and I like to think of these conversations as conversations among elders conversations among mentors kind of thing and this is a really interesting opportunity to just sort of for the three of us to riff a little bit about um you know, some particular topics. And in this case, the thing I really wanted to spend some time talking about, and and, and Fred, over email, you'd given a, a kind of nice flavor to it, which was to sort of to, to think about the positive attributes of an effective investor, an effective board member. And the first question I really want to play with is, to really talk about that journey. Because, you know, Brad and I did the VC boot camp back in, I don't know, when was it, Brad? April. And we've got another one coming up in January. I think one of the key things we're working with, we're all working with, is what does it really take to learn to be an effective director? What does it mean to really be 
a supportive investor? Sort of two different questions, but kind of related. So, Fred, I'll, I'll throw it to you first to just to see what your thoughts are about that. Well, I think that what I've learned over the years is if you are worried about your own investment in the company, the financial aspects of the money you've invested and the desire to get a positive return on it, um, you're, you're going to have a hard time being effective. I think what you have to do is you have to, once you've made your investment, you have to kind of forget about that and you have to think about yourself as a director of the company and you have to think about what's in the best interest of the company. Uh, and, 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 and if you can do that, um, and, and, and also what's in the best interest of the founders, the founders aren't the company, but they often are leading the company and they, they created the company. And so uh, if you can think about what's in the best interest of the people who are running the company and the company itself, um, that will sort of ironically or counterintuitively lead to better outcomes of your financial investment than if you're just focused on your financial investment uh, itself. And I've, I've seen this again and again. I've made this mistake myself, and that's how I learned it. But I see lots of people who come into the business making the same mistake. And uh, when you when you when you approach when you're in a group dynamic and you approach things selfishly, it's very hard to be effective. When you're in a group dynamic and you can leave your self-interest to the side and think about what's in the best interest of the group, you can be very effective. And so that to me is sort of the number one thing that I've learned over the years. I take that a step further. I, I, I love the construct uh, of going native, uh, which I think is a logical extension of what Fred just said. You know, I, I, I say often, uh, once once I've made an investment in a company, uh, I work for the CEO, uh, and I only want to make one decision, which is whether or not I support the CEO. And as long as I support the CEO, I work for her. If I don't support the CEO, it's my job to do something about it, which doesn't necessarily mean fire the CEO, but it means do something about the situation that I'm no longer confident. And I think in the context of that, you can actually go native as a director and put yourself in the context of working for the company rather than working for your investment. By definition, if you're working for the company and you're effective, you're working for your investment. But you don't have this of two minds where you're trying to balance this notion of working for your investment while trying to you know, help the company be successful. And to Fred's point, when, when people get tangled up in those two things, um, their self-interest almost always dominates. And that in a lot of cases, drives very, very bad decision-making, um, or even worse than bad decision-making, bad ineffective behavior in the context of the interaction around the directors, the other people that are directors that may have different interests than you individually, but have a common interest in terms of the success of the company. So I'm, I'm going to elaborate on that phrase, uh, bad, based on what I'm hearing from the two of you. In effect, not having a sense of, um, I'll use this term, evolved management of your own psyche leads to a counterproductive management of the investment on the part of the investor. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's good abstract. The, the, the specifics are there's endless tells that investors have around that. The, the biggest tell is when an investor uh, asserts 
especially aggressively that they're, they have to behave, you know, they have a fiduciary interest to the company. Right. You know, that, that, that's a tell that basically is a preamble to say, I'm about to fuck you over hmm. um, because I'm going to hide behind something else, which is this notion of a, this abstract notion of a fiduciary interest rather than the concrete notion of, okay, we've got a problem somewhere here. Let's figure out what the problem is and deal with it as human beings. And, you know, there's, there's, I don't know, 50 tells like that that you run into in the boardroom. And most of the time, those tells have, and, and the subsequent behavior have very, very little to do with the company. Uh, and a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times have very little to do with the other people in the room and have a lot to do with the person who's in the position where they're feeling their own stress rather than thinking about what's going on contextually. That doesn't mean, by the way, that there's not something fucked up in the company or in the boardroom or the interaction between the people. But it it essentially creates a layer between the individuals and the problem solving versus, I mean, I think about, you know, I'll use Fred and I as board members together. We, you know, Fred and I have been on plenty of boards. We've had plenty of conflicts where we had difference of opinions. But I can't remember a single time in 20 years where, you know, Fred has uh, specifically not been willing to engage directly with me in the difference of opinion. Mm. And I've always been willing to engage with him in the difference of opinion in a direct way versus a passive aggressive way or a passive avoidant way or a manipulative way. That's one-on-one. -on -one. Now put seven people in the mix or nine people in the mix. And if you can't get that directness, you, you get into a very bad place very quickly. But, but isn't it, it, it is true that a director has a fiduciary responsibility. And the way I've always seen it is that the fiduciary responsibility actually extends to all shareholders, including option holders, not merely to investors. And also to the debt holders, if you get yourself uh, anywhere close to insolvency. But that's why, that's why I said that you, if you put yourself in the position of what's in the best interest of the company mm. uh, and not what's in the best interest of you or you or you or you. Or your think, LPs or your partners and your, your GP partners. Right. Well, I, 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 um, I gave this little um, sort of speech uh, a week or two ago in a board meeting and, and uh, everybody was sort of opining about what the right thing to do was around a financing. And I said, the one person who's not in the room is the company. Like the company can't speak for itself, right? Like there is no, but that's who, you know, we're all kind of should be thinking about, right? Because, you know, the founders didn't want to get diluted. The investors didn't care so much about the valuation because they were going to put more money in. The management team was worried about, you know, their options and retaining the team and all that. So everybody had their own agenda, right? And there was one person who we had to care about the most, the sick patient, and that sick patient isn't in the room to make the decision. And so you have to all think about yourself and say, if I could imagine myself as that thing, that company, what would I want? Mm. And then we should all be advocating for that. That's, that was the speech I gave. So I think that's a brilliant speech and it's a brilliant metaphor and I love it. I want to go back to the path to getting there because I know that there are going to be a lot of younger investors who are listening to this. And I can already hear them. You know, Brad, you and I heard some of this even at the, the, the VC boot camp that we did a few months ago. And it basically goes like this, Fred. Yeah, that's easy for you to say. 
And what they mean by that is, I'm going to go back to the word you used before, which was counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive for a particular reason to put the patient, to put the company first. And it's counterintuitive, I think, because there are a lot of investors who walk into this room or take their seat as a director and they're scared shit. Yeah, well, you know, I think some of it comes from the partnership dynamics um, that we all work in. And, uh, you know, uh, we've we've taken an approach. I think it's very similar to the approach Brad and his partners have taken, which is that we value uh, the trust that we have around the table more than anything. And uh, we, we happen to be very fortunate that we have five partners who have all been in the business a long time and ha- all have developed um track records uh, that have, you know, been very successful and um, are, you know, not uh, at any risk of, of, you know, having to leave the partnership. And so we have this sort of wonderful, almost utopian dynamic of nobody is feeling stress with respect to each other around the table. And that leads to a lot of honesty and a lot of trust and a lot of good decision making. And I think it's really, really hard when you're a young investment professional coming into a dynamic uh, where you have to prove yourself and you're being measured. And, you know, if you if you don't deliver, you're not going to make the cut. Like, I don't know how that environment leads to that person being anything other than, you know, nervous and anxious in these difficult board meetings. So I, I think it would be incumbent upon the, the partner's who run these firms to either decide not to have young people around the table, which is something that we've done. And I think is something that Brad has done, or if you're going to have young people around the table, you got to give them permission to fail. You got to say, Hey, we, you know, we've all done it. We've all lost money. We've all made mistakes. We're not going to hold it against you. Like you, you have, uh, you know, our permission to, you know, screw up some investments, but don't screw up the company. Like, if you're going to lose the money, that's fine, but don't fuck up the company in the process. Like, that's what I think that's what you got to say to these young people. I'd add that for, you know, the the partner that we're, the abstract partner that we're describing, uh, one of the things that they benefit from are, you know, the, the dynamic that they have within their firm, you know, with the senior partners in their firm. Another dynamic they can benefit from is the other experienced investors around the board table with them. And instead of setting up a defensive posture or a a posture of, you know, uh, protecting their interest in the context of their firm, working to create a collaborative relationship with the more experienced people in the room that they respect um, where they can learn from those more experienced people and they can, uh, have those more experienced people help them think through the pressure they're in. So when I was, you know, early in my investing uh, arc, and I was in my, you know, uh, 30s, and I was on boards, and all of a sudden had some stress. You know, I looked at and companies had some stress. I had essentially three types of experienced investor directors that were on these boards with me. Category one was the investor director who knew better than everybody and dominated the discussion and tried to control what was going on. And more often than not, the second things went off a cliff was nowhere to be found. 
Um, the, the second person was the person who was paralyzed with all of the chaos going on. This was especially true in the bubble and had a very, very difficult time processing the specific situations because they were in react mode to everything. And then there was a third, which was the experienced investor who in some cases had been through this kind of stressor more before and were very calm, uh, about, the pain and the struggle and the stress. And we're very much in the moment with the founders, with the CEO and with the other directors. And when I think about those three different categories, I, I can name, you know, I, I can, I think of people in my mind that were in that third category that helped shape me significantly as a director and as an investor. Um, and in some ways, the behavior is react. My, my own behavior and my own learning is reacting to the other types, not emulating necessarily, but learning from. And I think there's a big difference, right? You can emulate somebody else's behavior or you can learn from their behavior. And I think for somebody who's in a stressful situation, feeling exogenous pressure from their firm with a company that's not working well, the key is to learn, not emulate. And to try to put yourself in a position where the people you're learning from are the ones that you believe are a value system that you want to carry forward in the context of a multi, I say this over and over again, in the context of a multi-term game, right? This company is going to fail. You're going to be an investor for a long time. Presumably, you're going to be interacting with these entrepreneurs again, hopefully, or the other investors again, understanding how to behave in a way that's respectful, thoughtful, helpful back to Fred's anthropomorphism of the company as the key entity rather than any individuals around the table. It's really powerful. Fred, what do you think of what, what Brad was just saying? Well, I, I, I do think that if there's a, uh, uh, you know, really experienced uh, BC around the table who uh, has the ability to remain calm and uh, and keep everybody focused on the right things. That's a wonderful thing. I just think that not that many entrepreneurs uh, find themselves in that situation. And uh, I think it's uh, more typical, I think, uh, to have um, uh, a group of investors who are uh, in the first or second category that Brad described, or possibly worse, just learning the business uh, and figuring it out. And there's and there is no elder statesman around the table. Um, I really encourage uh, entrepreneurs to bring independent board members uh, into the equation as early as possible. And I think independent board members can play that role too. It's a little harder because um, you know if you don't really have any capital at risk, um, then it's not really quite the same level of stress. But you know, look, if you're if you're sitting around the table with somebody who, you know, is in their 50s or 60s and they've run two or three companies and they've had a lot of success in their life and they basically say, hey, everybody, just calm the fuck down. Like, this is not going to no one's dying. Like, you know, we're, you know, compared to lots of other things, you know, we're we're, we're going to be just fine. Let's just all calm down and figure out the right thing to do. Like, that is so helpful. And I think if you don't have that in your investors, then you'd better figure out how to get that around the table some other way. And I think the independent director is a great mechanism for that. I th I'm, I'm glad you went to that point because I know that a lot of entrepreneurs, because, you know, with the work that I do, I hear the horror stories on the other side of it all the time. I hear what's going on, you know, when, when an entrepreneur comes in and tells me some, 
you know, horrific story of some crazy, crazy behavior that's going on. I want to bring it back, though, to I'm envisioning, you know, somewhat younger VCs, somewhat younger investors, folks just starting off in their career, listening to this conversation. And I'm hearing a couple of things. I'm hearing a, uh, some advice from each of you in different words about kind of being open to collaboration, being uh, open to learning, really uh, putting yourself out there to sort of, in a sense, you know, Brad and I have have used this phrase a lot, which which, you know, comes from work I've done this notion of radical self-inquiry, Fred, which is this this whole question of like, what the hell's going on for me? And what I'm envisioning is there's this moment where panic is starting to set in for the investor for whatever reason. They're in tender hooks with their partnership. It's their first major investment. Um, it's the first major investment that seems to be going into a downturn. We're, we're entering a crisis period. Think back to last January when it seemed that the world was ending and because of the public market collapse for a few weeks. In that moment, you've got to confront your own fear. In that moment, you've got to confront your own shit and what you're bringing into it. And what I'm hearing is that there's a kind of prescription here around that. Does that resonate with you guys? It does. And I've, I've felt it, you know, I've, I've, you know, I had a, I had a freaking panic attack, you know, on an, on a flight from New York to Washington, DC, uh, in 1994, 1995, when I was exiting one of my first big investments that I made at the first venture capital firm I worked for, and I was just freaked, you know, and I, and I, I wasn't self-aware enough about it to know how freaked out I was. And, you know, so I, you know, my, my body basically told me how freaked out I was, you know, and, it, and, and even looking back on it now, I, you know, I, it took me 20 years to figure out what that really was. Um, uh, well, it was, it was my own anxiety and I, and I was just not admitting it to myself. Right. And I was trying to, you know, hold it in and pretend like I had all my shit together. Right. And so, uh, you know, and, and then I all of a sudden felt, felt like I couldn't breathe, you know? So, so, so what was the threat to you? Right. Cause anxiety is like an expression of there's some sort of visceral threat and you probably, I mean, cause you know, we were, we, we became friends and really became close in 96. Was yeah, it right? So, so, yeah. This was right around that. Well, you know, the deal, cause it was the deal I was trying to close on the phone when you and me and Barbara and Joanne went out to dinner. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was the same company. So, um, you know, and, and Brad knows some of the characters involved. Ron Fisher was on the phone, you know, so it's like, you know, this, this is this is like, you know, it's we're all in the family here. But, you know, I guess for me, you know, I was about to have a big payday, uh, something that I really wanted, you know, for myself after being in the business for seven, eight, nine years. And I wanted to leave and start a new firm. And, and this was this was a deal that I thought was going to put me on the map. And make money for people I wanted to make money for. And, you know, so it was, a little, it was a lot, a lot at stake. And, uh, and what if, and it, guess, what if it didn't go through? What was the, what was at stake for you? Do you remember? I don't know. I mean, I don't really remember. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, Brad's smiling cause he knows I'm starting to coach Fred, <laughs> but I'm just saying like, like looking back on it now, it was all so, 
I don't know. It wasn't it wasn't anywhere near as big of a deal as I thought it was, right? So that's why, like, I don't really know what was at stake. I mean, it, it meant a lot to me at the time, though. But I think that I think that I think what you just did was really really important. Is that in the moment, the the visceral threat, the existential threat, feels so real, and you know, the arc of the experience is there. You are on an airplane, and you start to have a physical panic attack. And anybody who's had a panic attack, and, you know, fortunately, all three of us have had them. Yay! But anybody who's had a panic attack knows that it's actually a really, it, it's a physical experience. It's like an out-of-body experience where you can't even connect with, like, what's actually happening. And what was interesting is that you were able to make the connection back to there's something else going on here that has nothing to do with the in the moment. So there you are in the airplane and the airplane scared you. Well, no, I, well, I mean, honestly, you know, today I, you know, I, I can, you know, self-diagnose what happened here, but at the time I thought there was something physically wrong with me. I mean, it didn't go to, Oh, it's this deal I'm trying to close. And this, this deal is making me stressed out and therefore I'm making myself sick. I was like, oh, I, I'm having a heart attack. I, there's like something physically wrong with me. I didn't realize this was all in my head. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one story from my own experience. Do you remember the investment we did at Flatiron in IXL? Yeah, okay. sure. And remember when we first started Flatiron, I had that that headache attack, which you blamed for your, on yourself for years and years, and I let you blame yourself on. Um, <laughs> I gave you migraines <laughs> and I ended up in the hospital for a week, the week we started flat iron or like the week after. Anyway, years later, uh, we, we had this investment in IXL. IXL had gone public and I remember getting a phone call. I was going out to our house in the Hamptons at the time. And I remember getting a phone call as I was driving out. Um, and being told that there was an arithmetic error in the spreadsheet being used to forecast our upcoming numbers. And we were going to be off by like a factor, you know, an order of magnitude. We were off. And, and Fred's laughing because you remember this. And I remember walking in and having the worst migraine I've ever had, short of the one that put me into the hospital just before we were starting. And that was that physical. And I was like, what is wrong with me? And it's like, what was wrong with me was this was one of my first public company boards. And I didn't know how to handle missed quarterly expectations. I And all that came up for me at the time was, holy shit, what a bad investor I am to have not anticipated, get this, that the CFO was going to have made a, an arithmetic error in the damn spreadsheet. Like I was supposed to have anticipated that and figured it out. There's, there's a profound link between two things that both of you have just said, right? One is the, the physical or physiological reaction to something that the second linkage is that you feel like you should be able to control, but you can't. Right. Right. And the, the linkage there is what I think gets in so many people's way, which is, you, you, you know, the, the physical or physiological reaction is going to impact your behavior. Like, there's no way it can't. And if you are not aware of what's stimulating the physical, physiological behavior, you then behave in a way that in a lot of cases creates a negative feedback loop. It makes things worse rather than better. 
And part of the instantiation of that is it drives you towards control, right? Many of the people in our world like to control things mm-hmm. uh, or try to control things. And it's, you know, the, 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 the cliche of, you know, you're, you, you, hold, uh, you hold a baby bird in your hand and the harder you, you know, the, the tighter you squeeze it, the, the try to control it, the more you kill it, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's the same kind of thing. Like, you know, of course, of course you're a shitty investor because you didn't double check the spreadsheets that the CFO <laughs> right. of the company were doing. And then the next thing that happens on your next company is you start torturing the CFO who's perfectly competent because you're trying to control this thing that's actually outside your control versus saying, okay, we've got a problem. The problem is this. We have a couple of, you know, we know the root cause of the problem. You know, it might've been that the CFO just made a mistake. It could have been that, you know, Excel had a bug in it. That That's never happened before. It could have been, been that he was an alcoholic, right. right? You don't know, like all of these things that have nothing to do with you or your competence as an investor, but you still have the problem to solve. Right. And if you're not able to detach from that physiological response, you know, your behavior ends up, I mean, you know, the, the again, the simple phrase fight or flight, right? You, you go into this mode of either withdrawing completely or attacking rather than focusing on coming full cycle back to 15 or 20 minutes ago, what's best for the company at that moment in time? Like, what do you need to do to help the company get through what is going to be this no fun moment? I'll tell you. St- I'll tell you a story because um, this bit about this no fun moment. I remember uh, having breakfast with the CEO of a relatively small company, and he said to me, um, "My entire engineering team just quit on me." And this was like a it was like a six person company. Like five of them quit on him. And I and I said, "You know, you can probably save the company, um, but you're going to have to do this and this and this in pretty short order, and you're in for like." probably six months of incredibly shitty uh, time. This is going to suck. Like this is just going to suck tremendously. But if you're willing to go through it, you can probably save the company. And he was like, and then he told me like uh, two years later, he was like, that was that, that had like, I didn't freak out. I didn't like, you know, throw a tissy fit or anything like that. I just basically explained to him what the next three to six months of his life were like. And I said to him, if you want to fucking deal with that, then you can fix this. But I mean, I'm telling you, this is going to really suck for you. So the CEO was was a, a company that was a company you'd invested in, Fred. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so how did you not freak out? Well, we well, first of all, we only had like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars of seed investment that we had made, and like, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't that big of a deal to me anyway. And you know, I don't, I knew the company was kind of struggling anyway, which is why he lost lost his whole engineering team. And so at that point in time, I had sort of written off the investment anyway. Um, and, you know, I just was dealing with the reality of the situation. And, you know, was like, this is a human being. He hadn't written off his investment like he was freaking out. And I was just like and he'd never done it before. He'd never been a founder or CEO before. And I was just like, OK, well, like this is basically what you're going to have to do. And if you're willing to do it, then I'll I'll be there for you. You know, and I was there for him. He had to do the work. Let, let, let me let me give my version of of sort of key moment for me that was a trigger, which was around 2000, 2001. Uh, and it was, I, I was co-chairman of a company, uh, a company was called Interline, which I've talked about was, was at one period of time, you know, my biggest success. And then ultimately one, one of my biggest failures 
And my co-chairman was a guy named Len Fassler who had bought my first company. And Len is, is a dear, dear friend and one of the people I've learned the most from. And the company was based in New York. So I was you know, in this mode in this period of time where I'd fly from Boulder to California on the 6 a.m. flight uh, Monday morning. And I'd work in California for Monday or Tuesday. And then I'd take the red eye to New York uh, and work on Wednesday and Thursday out of Interalliance headquarters and purchase. Uh, and then I'd fly, fly home on Friday and, you know, spend the weekend trying to recover. And Amy would patch me back up and, and ship me out the next Monday morning. And it was just a total clusterfuck of a time. Uh, and I would stay with Len in his house in, uh, uh, in Westchester. And it was in Harrison. And I, I can remember, like, it's in my brain. It's imprinted in my brain this morning. I was exhausted. I was fried. Uh, you know, the, the stock price had gone, it was public company stock had gone from in the fifties to low single digits. Uh, you know, we probably laid off a third of the company by this point. Uh, you know, the company had gotten up to a couple hundred million dollars a year in revenue, but it was awesome at losing $5 million a month. We'd mastered that no matter what we did, we, we were really good at nailing that $5 million a month loss running out of cash. And I'm sitting at his breakfast table and I made myself a cup of coffee and I can barely eat. I'm so nauseous and so exhausted and so fried. And it's not just Interliant that's all fucked up. It's all the other companies I'm on the boards of also. Uh, I was on four public company boards. The same stress that Fred was feeling, that you were feeling, that lots of other people were feeling in 2001. But this was a company I co-founded uh, with you know, one of my, my dearest mentors, somebody who really had, had, had bought my first company. And I'm sitting at the table and I've got a bagel, a cup of coffee I'm drinking, a bagel in front of me that I'm sort of gnawing on, but not really eating. And Len sort of rolls into the kitchen, ready to go. And he looks at me and he sees I'm in utter distress. And he says, uh, what's wrong? And I just sort of mumbled to him, I don't feel like fucking dealing with any of this. And he looks at me and he, and he you know, claps me on the shoulders. Like, you know, if you could see what I'm doing, like, you know, uh, he's, he's a short guy and I'm not such a short guy, but I'm sitting down and just puts his arms on my shoulders and he says, uh, come on, Brad, they can't kill you and they can't eat you. <laughs> he slaps me on the back and he said, let's go to battle. Mm. And I looked at him and I'm like, you know what? And just the emotional energy, the positive surge of emotional energy from that moment. I mean, he was feeling the same stress I was feeling. It was just this intense, incredible moment. And you know, for, for me, when I carry around the moments that are just like, I, I don't want to deal with the thing. I know it's going to be a shitty period of time. The thing is all fucked up. I just think to myself, they can't kill you and they can't eat you. You know, I love that story. Um, and it brings me back to something you both touched upon before, which is this notion of trust. And, you know, Fred, when we talked last time, we talked a lot about building trust between the entrepreneur and the investor. But I'm going to bring you back to this notion of trust within the partnership. And Fred, you described what you guys have at Union Square Ventures as a kind of utopian thing. I'm going to actually challenge you on that. I actually don't think of utopia in the sense of like something externally thrust upon you. I think that the environments that you guys have created at Union Square Ventures and at Foundry was a direct result of the values each of you and your partners hold as human beings. Yes, I, 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 I'll say it in, in, in the way I think about it, which is a little different, but it's the same thing. 
which is that when when Brad Burnham and I started uh, USV, and when when Brad and Seth and Ryan and and Jason started Foundry, um, the thing that that drove us, and I suspect it's the thing that drove Brad and his partners, is we wanted to create a firm that we wanted to work in, and that was designed from the ground up to not have all those things that all the other places we'd worked at had, right? Like, but, but look, by the third time that you do something, you get it right, you know? And like, I, you know, it just like, I made a lot of mistakes uh, over the years. And when we got around to starting USB, we're like, this is what we want. We want a place that, you know, we can be partners, where we can be open with each other, where we can trust each other, where we're, you know, not trying to manage too much money, where we're not trying to do too many things, where, you know, like, you know, we're working in our comfort zone. And, you know, we've been criticized for that. Like, you know, a lot of people have criticized us. It's five white guys. It's it's definitely not a thing I'm proud of. But the fact of the matter is, it's five white guys who really love each other. Like, you know, so that's, that's worth something. Like, you know, and I don't want to just add, you know, uh, somebody who's got a different skin color or a different sex, uh, just, just, you know, to have somebody else at the table, like it's gotta be somebody who can come into that equation and, 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 and be part of the group or it's going to fuck it up. And I don't want to fuck it up. Mm. Brad. You know, I learned a lot from what Fred and Brad did when they started USV, when Jason, Seth Ryan and I started started foundry. Um, and you know, a lot of, a lot of it was conversations, uh, you know, with Fred, a lot of it was observation for us. Uh, I think that one of the things that we knew from the beginning or that we had as a deeply held belief, cause we'd known each other for a long time was this idea that we wanted to be equal partners and we wanted to be best friends. So we, we held those two values, uh, equivalent. And, you know, we, we had to go through our own struggles early on. We had a fifth partner, uh, who co-founded the firm with us. Um, you know, a year in, there were four equal partners and one associate, uh, and he didn't know how to make the transition from, uh, you know, associate and he had worked for me prior to an equal partner. And we had to deal with 18 months in, you know, the very, very difficult thing of changing the configuration by, by, you know, letting one of the people go. And that reinforced that deeply held belief of the notion that we're all equal partners. And it also forced us to confront the dynamics of being best friends because, you know, he had been a very close friend uh, to at least two of us prior to that moment in time. We started at the beginning with this notion that every quarter, in addition to focusing on review of our portfolio and what was going on in our, our companies that we would do a review of each other and a review of our relationships. And part of that review of our relationships included a self-assessment, a self-review and all done in public. And for the first couple of years, we had an outside facilitator. We did it in a formalized way. Um, you know, we built muscle and, you know, by year five or year six, uh, it had evolved to the point where we do a, you know, a, a, an offsite once a quarter for a day, and we split it into two pieces. The first piece is discussion about uh, our portfolio as a whole, and the ownership of the meeting rotates from partner to partner, so everybody gets one shot a year at doing it, and they can run that discussion of our portfolio as a whole any way they want. Um, 
And then the afternoon, after we have a break for lunch, the afternoon is focused on answering the following question. How am I doing? That's it. It's, it's not any more specific than that. There's no structure. And how am I doing can mean how am I doing personally? How am I doing professionally? How am I doing with regard to you? Um, how am I doing with regard to the firm? How do I feel about how the firm is relating to me? How do I feel that you are relating to me? And I would say that of my experience each quarter, if I think about the 90 days of a quarter, my most intense, emotionally intense professional time is that four-hour segment mm -hmm. in the afternoon where we answer that question. And over you know the decade that we've been working together, 40 or so meetings like that, um, there's never a lack of discussion and there's never a lack of learning and there's never a lack of stress points between people, within people, relative to what's going on, relative to their life. And having a safe place, a confidential place with the people who are my equal partners and my best friends to deal openly with those issues on any dimension, I think has been the bedrock of what we've created. And when I reflect on, you know, I don't like the word utopia either, because I don't think Foundry Group's a utopia. We got lots of things that are not utopic. <laughs> um, and by the way, we're all going to die. So what does utopia actually mean anyway, right? I mean, it's a continuous process, but it's that effort that we put into not just building a firm or some abstract construct, but into ourselves and the relationships with each other. And, you know, I, I can speak for Fred from a distance because I know how he's approached it with his partners, you know, at a high level. I think the best partnerships that I'm aware of, whether they're venture partnerships or other types of partnerships, are the ones that do that with vigor versus lip service. I think it's very, very easy to do it in a casual way. And by the way, if you cycle this all the way back to boards, I think it's an example of a thing that boards massively underinvested, including all many of the boards, almost all the boards I'm on. I'm on a handful of boards where I think the CEO does a good job of 360s across the system once a year and a good job of open communication. You know, but the ironies are in some cases when when everything's okay, it feels good. But when things aren't okay, all of that shit sort of falls to the wayside. It's more hygienic than it is deep. Yeah. And I think the mistake a lot of people make in our world is is to not go deep and not to and to not invest the right amount of time going deep on those things. I, I think that's super helpful. I want to I want to wrap with two points uh, here. The first is, you know, Fred, when we first started, we used to use a phrase a lot, which is partnership first. And I think that when we use that externally. It can be misinterpreted to mean we put the partnership ahead of the company. Right. But I think actually what you both did was actually explicate further. What does it really mean to create partnership first? And that by investing the time in creating a healthy partnership, you're actually able then to put the companies first. Because you create these safe, trusting environments, and Fred, I'll repeat the word you use, that have love built into it. Right. 
Well, look, I mean, yes, I, I think it's very hard to it's very hard for a venture capitalist or a venture capital firm to do right by a company if they don't have their own house in order. Now, we, we don't do what what Brad and his partners do. We we uh, we are not as um, mature and evolved as they are. I mean, it's impressive. I, I'm not sure I could handle that. I and mean, I don't want to, I really don't want to know how I'm doing sometimes. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we have our moments yesterday, you know, I was talking about one of the companies I'm on the board of and two or three of my partners started getting on me about how things were going in the company. And I got kind of fired up and went right back at them. And, you know, we, we had it out, you know, it's not much different than the way Joanne and I have it out every day, it seems, but at least we're having it out. At least, you know, we're calling each other on our bullshit. Now we don't do it in, we don't do it in, in a process the way that, that Foundry does it. We do it kind of in, in our work. Um, uh, but that works better for us. Uh, we should probably try it the way that Brad and his partners do. Uh, well, I, I'm the, afraid the, of it, though. <laughs> this may be Boulder versus New York, <laughs> stylistically. I think it is style. I, I don't think it's actually, I, I say this at a meta level, I don't think it's actually that different. Like, you know, our, our internal phrase is brutal honesty delivered kindly. Right. And, and we... As a as a foursome, I don't think there's been a moment that I can recall in the a very long period of time where we haven't, where one of us haven't said to any of the others what we were actually thinking. Yeah. And, and there are moments where you say it and you're anxious or you're uncomfortable or you feel like you might hurt someone's feelings or, or you know you're going to hurt someone's feelings. And that's where the delivered kindly comes in for us. Our style is I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm not trying to create a fight. You know, I'm being bolder, mellow. I, you know, I, 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 I'm being uh, easygoing about it, but I'm being blunt and direct and clear and as crisp as I can be. And that's a style. And there's a style, you know, that's a New York style. Like I, I, I know Joanne well. Joanne would beat the crap out of me in every argument we had, because the second she'd escalate, I'd show her my belly. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just roll over. And Fred doesn't, right? And Fred and Amy would have, maybe you show your belly pretty quickly. I mean, you know, if Amy escalates, I just, hey, I don't want to fight. And I learned a long time ago that saying I don't want to fight doesn't solve the problem, yeah. right? I, but not not being brutally honest, not confronting the issue, but doing it in a way that fits your personality, fits the personality of each other in the firm. And again, linking back to the board table, the CEO theoretically gets to set this tone, but it's very hard to set this tone with a bunch of investors who have different you know, personalities and different egos and different structure. And so making sure that you're putting the right kind of energy into it, not just as CEO, but as the directors around the table to make sure that when the shit hits the fan, you can actually function effectively. I'm quite confident that when Amy and I have a crisis, uh, the second the crisis appears, the two of us know how to get on the same side of that crisis and work together. I'm quite confident Fred uh, and Joanne know how to do the same thing when a crisis appears. Same thing with our partnerships. I mean, that's where the magic starts to come because we will all have crises 
the crises will continue. They get, you know, sometimes they're more extreme than others. And a lot of times they're out of the blue or you can't control them or you don't understand what's actually causing them, but you still have to deal with them. Well, Jerry, Jerry, if I could give if I could give the entrepreneurs who are listening to this podcast some advice, I think I would really encourage them when they're pitching, uh, you know, the final pitch meeting to try to pitch the entire partnership and not do it one off or anything like that, because I think and then the second piece of that is uh, to try while you're pitching to also be observant of the partnership dynamic. And, and that's, I, I understand this is a really hard thing to ask someone to do because they're selling, right? They're in that moment. And this is the moment where they got to get the people around that table to agree to make the investment and that putting all their energy into that. But if they can also be observant of the dynamic around that table and is everybody asking questions kind of equally and are people respectful or people cutting each other off or are they respectful and are people following each other's leads? There's all these things that happen. They happen in boards, they happen in partnerships, they happen in management teams. And if you're sophisticated about that and you understand that and you can pay attention to that, you will know whether you're talking to a healthy, functioning partnership or a dysfunctional, unhealthy partnership. And I think that healthy, functioning partnerships help companies and unhealthy, dysfunctional partnerships generally hurt companies. And I know that's kind of like a very kind of like I'm just I'm making a blanket statement and I'm sure it's not always true. But in general, I think that's very true. I think it's Let a brilliant add, assertion. Go ahead. I want to I want to add add. Uh, one thing to it, which is underscore uh, underscore what Fred said about healthy versus unhealthy. I actually think it's very true, especially over a long period of time. Um, however, the one thing I the, the nuance I would add in there is that healthy partnerships don't all look the same. Mm-hmm. Of course, um, and mm-hmm. and that's super important. So I'll use Fred's example of pitch the whole partnership. If you're an entrepreneur, the chance of you getting Seth, Jason, Ryan in the room to pitch all of us is close to zero because that's not how we function. Um, however, using Fred's heuristic is, is completely applicable, which is when you interact with each of us, go extremely deep, not just with me as a person, but with how I think about it in the context of Seth, Jason, or Ryan. And play back things you've heard from the one-on-one interactions you're having to test whether there's alignment and frame of reference that's equivalent. And the other, the other piece of that is when you're trying to understand a partnership, don't anchor on the partner that you think is the one who's going to be on your board or leading your deal. Make sure you're looking across the partnership and that you're doing your work to talk to mostly other entrepreneurs because that's the best intel you're going to get on how the partnership works but to understand what the context of that partnership is and what the dynamics between the people are. Uh, brilliant, brilliant advice from both of you. I mean, I, I, I can just hear it resonating with, with people all over the place, and that's really helpful. Last comment, and then I'll let you guys go. You know, Fred, you said something before which really resonated with me, which is something that we try to live by at Reboot and something that I, I really encourage um, the people who come to our boot camps, the people who sort of sign up for our coaching, and that is this sort of core notion of what kind of company do you want to work for? 
And right, you have the opportunity. We all have the opportunity. If we're going to go out on the limb and be entrepreneurs, we have an opportunity to create the kind of company that we want to work for. And what I'm hearing from the two of you is that you both created the partnerships that you wanted to work for. Um, and I feel very fortunate in that I also am working for a company that I want to work for, right? I've helped create that dynamic. Um, last words, does any of this have resonance, this, this identification of that particular phenomena? I, I think it's the most awesome thing about being a founder of a company. And it's also the hardest thing about being a founder of the company in that you start with no other human beings other than maybe your co-founders and you have an idealized notion of what you want to create and maintaining and evolving because it's not static, but evolving that idealized notion of what you want to create uh, when you're 10 people, when you're 50 people, when you're 100 people, when you're 1,000 people, when you're 5,000 people, when you're 10,000 people, it's incredibly fucking hard to do. And it's not constant. It's not a straight line. It's not a, an easy path. It is at some level the essence of being a founder that's so easy to lose track of when you're told what you should do and what success looks like and you're trying to emulate others versus looking inward and defining it from your own frame of reference. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a lot easier for me uh, and Brad uh, to find a place of comfort in an organization that's 10 people or 12 people or eight people. And how big is Reboot now? Uh, well, if you count all of the coaches are working for us, we're about 20 people now. Right. So now it's getting harder. And, yeah. you know, I was at a board meeting last week and the CEO was was really unhappy. And the thing that he was ultimately unhappy about was the company wasn't the company that he wanted it to be. And he's like, I woke up and I realized my company isn't living up to the values that, you know, that matter to me. And like, he's like, I'm pissed off. What do I do about it? And I was like, well, stay pissed off until, until it starts behaving the way you want it to be. No, you should have uh, told, told him to come to the October boot camp that we're doing. <laughs> okay. Well, I will kill him to do that. But that's, but Brad's right. It's super hard. I, mean, I watch these people deal with this. It's like, I don't know how you scale that. I mean, obviously you can scale it and, Many, many have. And I think, Jerry, that you and your colleagues probably are part of the recipe for figuring out how to do that. But like, uh, I feel lucky that we don't really have to scale it. And so we can keep it small and, 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 and that makes it easier for us. I, I remember the moment it happened to us at Flatiron Fred. It was when we actually had spent time trying to figure out whether or not we we're going to have a dress code. <laughs> remember that discussion? Uh, and like, I, I put it out of my memory. <laughs> a lot of that out of my memory. I remember coming in, Brad, and when we just said, Jesus Christ, I now work for a company that has a dress code. <laughs> and we're talking about the guy who, when I first met Fred, I was wearing torn jeans, torn T-shirt, and a Yankee cap turned around, you know. Jesus. Well, well Jerry, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, you're wearing shorts right now. I am wearing shorts. Yes, that's, I live so, in my shorts. <laughs> there we go. That, 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 apparently, that's the dress code at Reboot. That, that, that moment in time that that crossed that, that, that crossed your mind, you your your dot 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 was, and we're fucked now. And we're fucked now, exactly. <laughs> 
Well, guys, this was amazing. I mean, really, it's just a, such a delight. And I'm going to extract a promise from you to do this again, because, um, you know, we're a bunch of old men sitting on a park bench uh, swapping stories. And there's some portion of the population that actually gives a shit about what we say. So um, I really appreciate you taking the time this morning to do that. Happy to do it. Happy to sit on, sit on the virtual park bench with you anytime. All right. I love you guys. And thank you too. so much. All right. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all three seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Will any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo, king of night vision, king of At Reboot, we often talk about the value of relationships and mirroring back to us our blind spots. Now, all honest feedback is valuable, and it's great if your culture supports a constant flow of feedback. But it's often helpful for leaders to take deeper dives into radical self-inquiry, giving themselves focused and intentional space to examine the patterns of behavior that are either serving them or not serving their teams and their missions. 360 reviews are a really powerful tool that can help leaders make course corrections, supporting both individual growth and the growth of the company. While there are many approaches to 360s out there, what we have found to be the most helpful to our clients is to approach the 360s as an extension of the coaching conversation. Most leaders don't care how they rate numerically on a list of abstract capacities. And even if they do, it's tough for them to really know how to make use of that kind of data. But if they can hear through the voices of their colleagues, how their behavior is making impact, and if they can be helped by a coach to see more clearly the choices available to them for change, the benefits can be immense. If you'd like to learn more about Reboot 360s, you can go to reboot.io slash 360.